You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. As you're turning there, we do have our sermon notes available in our Google Drive folder. Quickly coming to the end of the book of Hebrews, we've been going through it chapter by chapter, talking about Jesus being better and greater, and because of that, it gives us great reason to hold fast to him in the midst of trials and temptations, and when things get hard and when things get tempting, we certainly don't run from Jesus, but we run to him. Last week, we saw in Hebrews chapter 9 how Jesus performs his work in a better sanctuary or a better tabernacle. We talked specifically from uh, Hebrews chapter 9 about him being in the heavenly places and him being superior there. Uh, we talked about the adequacies of the, the Old Testament tabernacle and how it, it served a purpose. It's not bad. It's not evil. It's part of God's plan that um, it served as a tool to remind us of our sinfulness, to inform us that blood is necessary. So it certainly served a purpose. It paved the way for us to understand the context in which Jesus comes. And so as we ponder that and think about that this Christmas season, um, we can be very thankful for the tabernacle because it helps us to connect the dots and helps us to see why Jesus came the way that he did and why he did the things that he did. Um, We saw the inadequacies or the inferiorities of it as well, though, that it was simply a shadow, that even when it was followed fully, the Old Testament tabernacle gave very limited access to God. Only the high priest had access Uh, once a year, that it dealt more with the external than the internal, and that it was a setting where sacrifices were constantly being repeated, um, and that they were never going to end. And so uh, we talked about Jesus's blood being superior, that he brings an eternal atonement, that he cleanses our consciences in ways that the Old Testament sacrifices could not. We talked about how uh, we need to serve faithfully because we've been saved to do that. We talked about our dead works decreasing our intentional sins being minimal uh, because of the promises of the new covenant. We talked about preparing adequately because judgment and Jesus are both coming. And because we're going to face death or because we're going to face his return, things that we can't escape, um, that we need to be prepared for those things. And uh, we should be eagerly waiting for Jesus to come back as we confidently believe that his work has saved us. Um, And so from an application standpoint, told you last week to really think through any unintentional sins that you're guilty of and whether or not you're confessing them and fighting against them. We said these are things that will will rear their head, things that will manifest themselves in your life, not because you're intentionally trying to do them, but because you're just still an imperfect uh, new creation that's being sanctified daily. And are there things that we can do to minimize those unintentional sins? And then I challenged you as well to think through any willful pattern of sins that you're allowing in your life and things that you can do to make sure that those are extinguished. These are conscious decisions that you're making to do things that you know are in disobedience to God. That Those things should be minimal as we're growing in our faith, and we should do everything we can to extinguish those from our life. That brings us to Hebrews chapter 10, a chapter that talks much about the great sacrifice of Jesus and how he is a superior sacrifice than the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. It's going to talk about the full assurance and confidence that we gain the more we meditate and come to an understanding of the work of Jesus, and then gives us some practical applications of what that should mean for our regular life and how it should affect even the gathering uh, priority in our life as we seek to, to get together with other believers, that that should be something that's certainly prioritized in our life. And then closing out the chapter, another warning that we find here in the book of Hebrews, that if we go on sinning deliberately, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. And so we'll talk about a bunch of different uh, topics within this chapter as we move forward through uh, Hebrews chapter 10. But from a summary standpoint, give that to you. Jesus's better sacrifice enables us to enjoy full assurance of salvation, releasing us from the need to offer sacrifices ourselves, and empowering us to live obediently while encouraging others to do the same. Jesus' better sacrifice enables us to enjoy full assurance of salvation, releasing us from the need to offer sacrifices ourselves, and empowering us to live obediently while encouraging others to do the same. For our kids, I don't have to doubt my salvation because Jesus has done everything necessary to give me assurance. All right, so we're going to talk about that theme of 
of doubting our salvation and the assurance and confidence that's meant to be given to us through meditation on the work of Jesus, that we're not supposed to live our life doubting the, the work of Christ and doubting the application of it to our life. And I told you, man, a lot of Christians struggle with this. A lot of kids struggle with this as they're growing up and, and, and expressing faith in Christ. It's, it's very common for kids who have grown up in the church to later in life begin to doubt their salvation. So we're going to talk about that, that there should not be uh, an ongoing doubting of our salvation, right? And I don't say that to mean like that's sinful, that's wrong, but in, instead I'm trying to help you to understand that, man, we don't have to live like that. We don't have to live doubting our salvation, that we can have full assurance that Christ's sacrifice has atoned for all of our sins. All right, as you're writing that down, from an introductory standpoint, um, the people that are reading this for the very first time, these are people who were already starting to pay a price for their faith and are most likely going to see that increasing and the threat of apostasy becoming more and more real for them. Because at the end of this chapter, he tells them to recall their former days, meaning think back to your earlier days of being a Christian and think about some of the things that you were able to walk through and weather during that time. And so he talks about some of the challenges that they faced um, and, and the idea of being imprisoned and being publicly ridiculed. And so those were things that they had already dealt with as a church. There's, real, there's really no mention of anybody dying yet. So this is early in the uh, Roman persecution. They haven't progressed to the point of martyrdom, but they will. They will get there. And so uh, the author here is very concerned about the fact that they need to Remember what they've already weathered and keep enduring, keep pressing on. So the price they're paying is probably going to increase. There was probably a fear as that, in, as that threat is increasing, and that's why they're not meeting together. Because the author has to address the idea that some of them have developed a bad habit of not gathering with the church, not meeting with the church. And so it's most likely out of fear for their life. And then we're going to continue to see here in chapter 10 that the old covenant, at best, it temporarily suspended the judgment of God, whereas in the new covenant, Jesus' sacrifice is permanent redemption for us. So old covenant, the best the animal sacrifices did was temporarily withhold God's judgment. New covenant, Jesus permanently redeems us from our sins. Okay, let's jump right into the text. We'll jump right into our notes today. Uh, if you're keeping notes with us, number one, we need to find confidence because of Jesus' sacrifice. We need to find confidence because of Jesus' sacrifice. For our kids, Jesus forgives all of my sins forever if I'm a Christian. So if we're believers here this morning, we should have great confidence as believers because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Let's start reading in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying... This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus does a couple of things through his sacrifice. All right. First off, he solves the issue of imperfect cleansing. He solves the issue of imperfect cleansing. The Old Covenant here is once again described as a shadow. 
a shadow that was incapable of perfecting the worshiper. It says it was a shadow of the good things to come. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So this shadow was incapable of cleansing the worshiper completely. But he also solves the issue of imperfect conscience. Because there's also this idea, idea here where he's going to remove the, the remembrance of sin. right? Like He's going to forget the sin. He's going to deal with the sin in such a way where we don't have to be reminded of our sins. So the shadow incapable of perfecting the worshiper. The animal blood's not working. And when you, when you read about the work of the priest here, Verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. <clears throat> their, their job description doesn't change throughout the Old Old Testament. Like, it, it never changes. It's not that they have accomplished anything and now they get a new job description, right? Like they don't sit down at the end of the year and at their end of the year review get new opportunities and new responsibilities. It's, hey, we got to keep doing this. We got to keep doing this. When you became a priest, you never got a new job description. You had the same sacrifices. Your work never progressed. You never moved the people really any more forward than they already were. These sacrifices were ineffective. The fact that they continue shows their imperfection. The fact that the priest is always standing shows their imperfection. That They could never do what you longed for them to do, and that was to fix you. All the elaborate furniture that's in the tabernacle, there's no chairs in the tabernacle because the priests were never intended to sit down. Their work was constantly ongoing. And the big negative is that there was a constant reminder of sin. The text even highlights that for us, right? That yearly, you had this day of atonement. Yearly, you had to be reminded of all of your sins for that year. It was an ongoing thing, constant thing. So Jesus solves that imperfect cleansing. He solves the imperfect conscience issue for us. And then number three, he solves the issue of sacrificial obedience. He solves the issue of sacrificial obedience. The great willing resolve by Christ to come and be obedient to the Father is seen here. That he's fully submissive. The text here highlights what Jesus does differently than the Old Testament worshiper. It says, Christ came into the world, verse 5. He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. What we're seeing here is the tension between God desiring obedience and God requiring sacrifice. What's communicated in the Old Testament is that God desires obedience over sacrifice. That sacrifices are needed, so lest we think that, that anything bad happened here. Priests were good, tabernacles good, sacrifices are good. But man, they were a provision for failure to be obedient. God doesn't desire the sacrifices, he desires the obedience. The sacrifices were put in place due to failure to be obedient. Look what, look what the, the, uh, the issue is in First Samuel 15. Like this is where... Some of the Old Testament worshipers didn't, didn't get this connection. First Samuel chapter 15, not long after Saul's been made king, he's told to, to go and to destroy the Amalekites, to kill King Agag. He doesn't do that. All right, First Samuel 15, 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Why is he angry? I think Samuel, I think he really liked Saul. Like he, he did not want to see Saul fail. So he's grieved over the fact that Saul fails here, grieved over the fact that Saul doesn't listen. Right? So Samuel's angry. He's crying out all night. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. It was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. Behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Man, Saul is like fully confident when Samuel shows up. 
He's like, man, we've been waiting for you. Like, so good to have you here. Like, we're over here worshiping God. And I mean, we've done everything that God's told us to do. And Samuel's like, well, then why do I hear the animals? Because the instruction was, man, we're going to kill all of it. We're not going to keep any of it. We're going to kill all of it. And Saul's not making the connection here. Look what he says. Saul said, they've brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I'll tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of uh, Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to the destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep, oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of divination and presumption presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. I mean, Saul's just not getting it. He's like, look, the only reason we kept these animals was to sacrifice them to the Lord. And Saul's like, the only reason you would need the animals to sacrifice to the Lord is if you're being sinful, right? Like, like they're not needed in this situation unless you're committing sin, which you've done. He's like, what the Lord desires is obedience. He makes provision for your disobedience with the sacrifices. What he doesn't desire is for you to have to keep offering the sacrifices. He says, you've completely missed it. Micah has the same idea here. Micah chapter 6, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The idea here is that God is not craving and desiring the sacrifices. He desires the obedience. The sacrifices are necessary when you're not being obedient. But the sacrifices are to continue to point you to obedience. Think of it this way. When, when we're coaching football, one of the things that we try to teach our, our, our athletes, our football players, is to watch the ball and to not jump before the ball is snapped. So one of the things the offense tries to do is to bark out calls to try to get the defense to jump off sides. Right? And so we'll do this in practice. The scout team offense will come up there and we'll try to confuse the defense and we'll try to get our defense to jump off sides. Right? And if we get them to jump off sides, the defensive coaches get angry and they make the defensive, co- the defensive players, it's what we call um, up-downs. Right? So the defense will have to sit there and they'll have to chop their feet. And when we whistle, they have to drop down, do a push-up, jump back up. And they have to do this typically 10 times for every yard or five times for every yard that they would lose on the penalty. And so the offense takes great pride in this because we, we get to watch them you know, suffer a little bit because we drew them off sides. Right? Imagine the defensive player coming to the coach after practice and saying, man, did you see how good I did my up-downs today? The defensive player is taking pride in something that the coach is saying, man, we're doing this to fix a problem. Like, what I want you to take pride in is that, hey, coach, did you see I didn't jump off sides today? Right? Like, it's not about how good did you do your up-downs, it's how good did you not jump off sides? Right? Like, the punishment piece, the provisional piece is we're going to do the up-downs. Right? Take any sport that, that, you know, if the kid's not giving effort, hey, take a lap, run a lap, because I'm tired of watching your, your ineffectiveness or your laziness or your inability to do what I've asked you to do. You don't come back and say, coach, did you see how great I did that, that thing, that punishment that you gave me? I don't care about that piece. Like, what I'm concerned about is you being obedient to the game plan of what we're trying to do here on the field. That part is because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. That's what's happening here. Saul's like, man, look, we've got all these animals to offer sacrifices. And Samuel's like, man, we only need those when we're being disobedient. And that's exactly what you're doing here. You're being disobedient. It's like you, you, 
you were disobedient and then you brought the provision for your disobedience, how much better would it have been for you to have just done what God told you to do? Right? So Jesus shows up here in Hebrews chapter 10. The author is saying Jesus is better because he comes and he is obedient. And the sacrifice that he offers is himself. And so he merges the idea of sacrifice and obedience together perfectly. God desires obedience over sacrifice. Jesus merges these two together perfectly. And then the text describes him as sitting down, demonstrating that he has completed the sacrificial aspect of his priestly work. It says in verse 9, Behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He goes on to highlight that promise of the new covenant from Jeremiah, that we get new hearts, law written on our hearts. We get the removal or the forgiveness of sins. Um, They're remembered no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Okay, This is all the confidence that we should have because of Jesus' sacrifice. He, He fixes our problem about needing to be cleansed. He fixes our consciences, and he comes to be a better, sacrificial, obedient individual right? Which gives some implications for us. Number one, I have been positionally made perfect forever as I am continually being sanctified presently. What does that mean? Well, look what verse 14 says. There's some tension here. For by a single offering, he, talking about Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, right? So the idea here is that the author is saying, Jesus has made you perfect as you are being made perfect daily, as God is moving you towards holiness, as God is pushing you through sanctification, as God is minimizing and decreasing the dead works, removing those intentional sins, fixing the unintentional sins, like you're becoming more like Christ. You're being conformed to his image regularly. And for all of us, that happens at different paces, right? Like we're all at different points in that process. But what's the same for all of us is that we have all been perfected by the work of Jesus from a positional standpoint, meaning he treats us as though we're perfect now. He treats us as though we're perfect. Are we perfect on a daily basis? No. Will we ever be before Jesus comes back? No. Glorification will come, and we will be in a forever setting where we're never tempted to sin again. Positionally, though, right now, we are treated as though we are in that state right now. It's why we don't offer sacrifices anymore. We have been perfected. He is forever perfected by that single offering, those who are being sanctified. Who's he talking about here? Who has that positional perfection? The people that are being sanctified. The people who God has started a good work in, he will finish the good work in them. Okay? So implication for us, why do I get confidence from Jesus' sacrifice? Because I'm perfect in his eyes right now. And I may not always feel perfect because I'm certainly not always perfect. But I can come back to the fact that positionally, I don't have to bring any sacrifices to church today. Nor do I have to do any type of spiritual discipline to make up for anything that I did this week. I've been perfected positionally. And I can trust that God is going to continually sanctify me daily. Second implication, I have been empowered to obey God without the need for personal sacrifices by the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. I have been empowered to obey God by the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. That's the promise of the new covenant that he comes back to here in regards to Jeremiah. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. When the sins of God's people have been decisively put away, a sin offering is no longer necessary. 
I told you earlier, we have to be careful that we don't become guilty of trying to offer sacrifices or trying to punish ourselves to atone for our sins. Spiritual disciplines and spiritual activities are never to be used in such a way to make ourselves feel better about things that we did sinful. You may hear somebody at the office say, whew, I really got to go to church this week because of what my weeks looked like, right? Like, like that's the mindset is that, wow, bad week needs to be atoned for. How do I do that? Probably need to get myself back in church, Right? It's not okay. It's not a good, healthy perspective because what we're saying is, is that I need to do something to fix what I did, right? Like this, this comes out of the, the Catholic mentality a lot of times where they, they will assign penance-type activities to fix things that you did previously, right? Like, hey, I'm gonna come and confess these things. Okay, let me tally this up. Okay, here's what you've gotta go do now because of what you just told me that you did. And there's a part of us that craves that. There's a part of us that says, give me the list of things to do to fix what I did this week because sometimes it's hard to just rest in the fact that somebody else has got to do it for me. Right? There, there's, there's a pride aspect to us that says, man, give me the sacrifice to offer. Give me the thing to do. Whereas the gospel says, man, you just got to sit back and let Jesus be the sacrifice for you. And that attacks every prideful bone in our body because every part of us wants to do something to fix it. Every part of us wants to do something to atone for it. And that's not the gospel. So we can say, man, Hebrews is so contextually unnecessary for us because there is no tabernacle for us to revert back to. We don't have to worry about uh, falling back into a state of sacrifices. And yet we kind of have to protect ourselves from it, even though we don't have to worry about the animal piece. We do have to protect ourselves from a mentality of thinking, I need to do things in response to the bad things that I've done. That's not part of the gospel. Your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been dealt with. And you need to be confident about that. You've been empowered to be obedient, the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You've been empowered to be obedient without the need for sacrifices. Because the single offering takes care of it for us. Okay? Last implication. I've been forever forgiven of my sins by the one sacrifice of Jesus. I have been forever forgiven of my sins by the one sacrifice sacrifice of Jesus. That remembrance piece of our sins has been removed. Old covenant, you had to remember your sins. You had to think about it when the day of atonement came. We don't have to think about our old sins anymore. Do we confess our current sins? Yeah, absolutely. Part of that, part of that is to make sure that they don't take root and become a, a, a regular habit. We confess our, our sins. But man, they have been dealt with and there is no work needed for them to be forgiven. And it's not that God has only forgiven the sins that we've committed up to this point, right? Like he's forgiven all of our sins. We don't even have to lay awake at night stressing over the fact that I confess everything that I did today. I remember um, school, uh, two of my friends came from a different denomination and, and they lived in fear that if they failed to confess certain sins, they might die and go to hell. Believers, Christians by name, like, we believe the same gospel, except we didn't. We didn't believe the same things about Jesus because they would, they would verbally confess to me, hey, at night we have to confess all of our sins. And if we forget any of them, we may be held accountable for them. And that's not the gospel. One single offering, all of our sins are forgiven. They're remembered no more. All right, so find confidence because of Jesus' sacrifice. Number two, feel assurance because of Jesus' cleansing. Confidence and assurance should be flowing out of chapter 10 for us if we're truly grasping the concepts here. For our kids, Jesus fixes both my attitude and my actions. Right, the new covenant is concerned with the inward and the outward, not just the cleansing of the outward. Like all the cleansing rituals that they even went through to offer the sacrifices, the priests, it was all external type stuff. Right? You could be an individual who brought sacrifices regularly that never really desired inward change. Like the system was set up to where you could do that. Out- outwardly, looks like you're doing everything right. Inwardly, man, it's a mess in there. Jesus comes to fix the inward and the outward. He fixes our attitude and our actions, right? He's not just concerned as to whether or not you've committed murder. He doesn't want you hating people. He's not just concerned about whether or not you're sleeping with somebody else. He doesn't you not even thinking about it, right? So he's concerned about the inward and the outward, 
And we can feel great assurance in our salvation because of the cleansing that comes from Jesus. Number one, we can draw near to God because of Jesus' cleansing. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, okay, so based on everything that I've just said to you, how Jesus' sacrifice is better, it's a one-time thing, deals with everything that it needs to deal with. Because of that confidence, we can enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can draw near to God because of the cleansing that's there. First off, our confidence is based on our right to be there. Think about this. How can we draw near in confidence? How can we have confidence to enter the holy places? Well, you're confident in places that you feel like you're supposed to be at. Like any lack of confidence is when you're not sure you're, not sure you're in the right place or not, right? Like if I know that I'm in a spot where I'm allowed to be, I should have great confidence in being there. Um, at, at school, um, principal's office, some kids don't get this, right? Like, I'll have my door shut, I'll be in a parent meeting, an intense parent meeting, and I'll sometimes have kids that'll just walk right into the door and come right over and ask me, like, the, the most ridiculous question possible, given the context of what I'm dealing with, right? And, it's, and I'll stop them and I'll say, what do you think you're doing? Like, you don't get to just walk into my office when the door's closed. Like, we don't have that type of relationship, like, nothing about this is communicating to you that you have full access to come in here, right? Most of the time, my door is open. Most of the time, I don't care if kids come in and, and immediately just walk in. Most kids, even when the door is opened, will kind of peer in, kind of look around, and kind of lightly knock and say, can I, and will wait for me to vi- verbally say, you may enter, right? Like, <laughs> most kids are terrified to come into my office, even though probably everything says, hey, you're welcome here. Some kids think that we have a totally different relationship and are fully confident to walk in, and, and, the, and they don't have that, right? What's being described here is the most holy setting possible that nobody had access to except for the high priest one time a year, right? And, and now we're being told, all of you have full access to it whenever you want. Right? That, that doesn't make sense to the original reader because their context would have been, we don't ever have access to that right? It's like the principal saying, man, you can come in anytime you want to. No matter what is happening in here, you can come in anytime you want. Our confidence is based on our right to be there. And it's not because of anything we've done. It's because of what Christ has done, right? All the work that has earned us the right to be there has been done by Jesus, but it should give us great confidence. It should give us great confidence. The holy places have been opened. The curtain has been removed. And our priest is there for us as needed. Going back to what he's already said in the book of Hebrews. Back in chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Man, we have every right to be there. Right? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. We talked about Jesus being like the fullback, right? He paves the way for us. He opens the hole for us. He creates the setting for us. We have full confidence. We have every right to be there because of what Jesus has done. Our high priest has fixed us inwardly and outwardly according to this passage. All right, so that was part of our kids' notes. Here we see it in our adult notes. He has sprinkled clean our hearts from an evil conscience, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. What's being described there is the inward and the outward, right? Remember they used to take the blood and sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant. We saw that in our, in our app that we were using last week. He's done that to our hearts, right? Like he's fixed us inwardly, fixed us outwardly, empowered us with the Holy Spirit. Positionally, we're fully perfect. 
daily we are being made more perfect practically. We can draw near to God because of Jesus' cleansing. And number two, we can hold fast to God because of Jesus' faithfulness. We can hold fast to God because of Jesus' faithfulness. He says in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. We have a responsibility to take personal measures to hold fast, but we also have the assurance of Jesus' faithful promise to keep us holding fast. There's some more tension there, right? Hold fast to the one who is faithful to keep you holding fast, right? So there's things that we do. Man, I think we see this right after this. What are some things that we practically do to hold fast? Man, we gather together with other believers. We seek to stir other people up to good works. We seek to encourage others because that is going to result in us receiving the same thing back. Those are things that keep us believing, keep us holding fast so that we don't fall into a state of sinning deliberately and apostatizing and falling away, right? So um, we're gonna see some things that I think we do from our standpoint to hold fast, but we also have this assurance that he who promised is faithful, he's gonna keep us holding fast. He's gonna keep us from wavering. So what's the implication here? We said, find confidence because of Jesus' sacrifice. Remind yourself constantly that you're positionally made perfect even though daily you're not yet, right? You're empowered to obey God by the presence of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to offer sacrifices. You've been forever forgiven of your sins by the one sacrifice of Jesus. Here, I should experience full assurance of my salvation by attacking any reason I have for doubts. 1 John 5.13. And this is why this book is labeled the book to go to when you're doubting your salvation. Because John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Right? Like, like we should not ever really be in a state where we're doubting our salvation. Now, all of us have been there. All of us have been in those states before. And when we find ourselves doubting our salvation, man, it is on us to figure out where those doubts are coming from and to attack those. Because what's being described here in Hebrews 10, we should be fully confident and we should have full assurance that we have every right to be in the holy place because of what Jesus has done. But man, I remember growing up as a kid being terrified at times as to whether or not I was a Christian or not. And I remember playing games with God and putting out my, my version of Gideon's fleece to try to get him to show me for sure that I was a Christian. And I distinctly remember laying in my bed and I had this nightlight that, that kind of was at the foot of my bed. And it wasn't always plugged in great and so it would flicker sometimes and not flicker sometimes. And I remember praying to God and, and, and I'd bounce back and forth. I'd pray to God and say, God, make it flicker if I am a Christian. And then I would be like, man, how long do I have to wait for it to flicker? And I would say, God, make it not flicker if I'm a Christian. And, we, and I've bounced back and forth on this like nightly. Like, God, give me some type of sign that I'm really a Christian. And I probably didn't recognize it at the time, but man, it was rooted in me wanting something to do to verify my salvation, right? Like, like what I would hear is, man, believe that Jesus is who he said he was. Believe that he came and, and that he died for you. Believe that you're a sinner and you need the work of Jesus to save you. And I'd, I'd say, yeah, 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 I get all that. There's gotta be something else in that though, right? And so then I fell paralyzed into this whole, did you mean it when you said it, when you were at a time in life that you don't really remember anything else in your life at that time, right? Because I was five years old. And, and, and so the challenge then was, Man, was I, was, I, was I a smart enough five-year-old to really recognize that I was a sinner in need of a Savior? And I remember my mom pulling out um, her journal and saying, let, let me show you some of the things that you were saying. Let me show you some of the things that, that you were asking. And she had thankfully journaled a lot of our conversation that led to my salvation. And that was the first time that I really stepped back and said, I'm a Christian. Like, like I have full confidence that what took place at the age of five was genuine because while I don't remember it, mom wrote down what was happening in my life, right? But even if she had not had that, 
right? Like some of you are sitting there thinking, man, I really need that right now. <laughs> like, like I would love for mom to pull out my thing because I was early when I got saved too. Man, even if, even if she didn't have that, the counsel that I would give to myself back then was, man, do you believe these things? Like are these things true about you right now? Then you're a believer. Then, then you're a Christian. Then you have been saved by the work of Jesus. You don't have to doubt that, right? Like everything inside of us says, give me something else to do. Give me something that I can check off and say, man, I did that. The new covenant is, man, you gotta have faith in, in the sacrifice of somebody else, not, not the one that you bring. Because nothing that you bring can, can be done one time. Anything that you brought would have to be offered regularly, continually, forever, and it would never forgive your sins. Our assurance comes from confidence in the work of Jesus. Our assurance comes from confidence in the work of Jesus. And I should attack any doubts that I have. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Man, if anything else needed to be included, shame on Paul for not including it right there. Right? Like if anything else needed to be included in the gospel presentation of what is it mean to be saved to go to heaven? What does it mean to be, uh, to be a Christian? Man, that's where it needs to be put. And he seems to be very intentional with the words that he puts there and the ones that he doesn't put there. And, and we were, uh, AJ and I were talking last night and AJ said, you know, dad, what does it mean to become a Christian? Like, what does it mean to be saved? And these are the things that I shared with him. Like, like this is what it means. This is what it means to be saved. And our assurance comes from not doing something, but from recognizing that everything's already been done. Everything's already been done by Jesus. And we don't have to doubt whether we're saved or not if we believe these things. My confidence is directly tied to my belief in the work of Jesus. Do I believe that he is sufficient for me? Number three, keep gathering because of Jesus' return. Keep gathering because of Jesus' return. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Keep gathering because of Jesus' return. Told you that they were most likely being tempted to not gather because of persecution. And if persecution isn't a reason to stop, then nothing is, right? Like, like if, if we're being tempted to not gather with other believers for anything less than, than persecution, then bad reasoning. Like, it had to be something greater than persecution to even be entertained because even persecution wasn't a good enough reason to not gather with other believers, right? Like, like the threat of having to gather in a house or gather in some location with other believers naming the name of Christ, and it could bring your death. Nowhere in Scripture are we ever told, under those circumstances, just stay at home and worship by yourself, right? Like, what we're told is, Man, keep gathering because you need it. Keep stirring one another up to good works. Keep encouraging one another. It's absolutely needed if you're going to make it to the end. Number one, oh, for our kids. Jesus uses the church to help me grow as a Christian. Jesus uses the church to help me grow as a Christian. And man, the church isn't just a place to, to learn about God, right? Like I was having a conversation. Uh, we have a coffee with a principal every quarter where I invite parents to come and sit down and just hang out, talk about different issues within our middle school. And so we did this on Friday. Afterwards, me and a dad are talking, and we connect the fact that he went to Liberty, I went to Liberty, and so we were talking about that. And um, he was like, man, I feel like I got enough, enough to where I didn't necessarily have to go to church anymore because of how much stuff I had at Liberty. And we started talking about, like, campus church and hall meetings and prayer leader meetings and SLD meetings. And he was like, man, I just got filled up, filled up. And I don't know that he was being serious, but he was just, he was saying, you know, like I got so much of it there, man, I, I was probably good for a while kind of thing. And if that's all the church was, maybe that's true. Maybe he got filled up knowledge wise and didn't need any more for a while. But that's not what church is necessarily about, the gathering of the church, right? Because what we see here is the necessity for us to gather because of what we bring as a contribution to that gathering, stirring each other up to good works, encouraging one another. 
our gatherings, number one, should create opportunities for us to stir each other to action. Our gatherings should create opportunities for us to stir each other to action. Let me ask you this question as you're writing. Do you identify the role that you need to play when we gather, especially on days when you aren't assigned a specific task? Let me say that again. Do you identify the role that you need to play when we gather, especially on days when you aren't assigned a specific task? Meaning, I'm not talking about you saying, yeah, my job is to play drums or my job is to keep the nursery. I'm talking about on days when you don't have something specific that we're telling you to do when you come here. Because those aren't the days that you're supposed to contribute, and then the other days you don't have to. When you gather, we're being told here, the gathering has a purpose for you to come to stir other people up to good works. And that should happen at some point when we gather. We're called to bring out the best in each other. Our gatherings should create opportunities for us to stir each other to action. Number two, our gatherings should create opportunities for us to encourage each other in belief. The two pieces here that he's talking about in gathering and not neglecting to meet together is so that we stir each other up to good works and that we encourage one another. And I can't think of any better way to encourage each other than to help reassure and give greater confidence to people based on the truths that we just highlighted here in Hebrews chapter 10. And I'm, I'm just going to kind of pause and give you the why for why we do something here. The reason that we do discussion groups on Sunday mornings is so that everybody has a role to play when we gather, that nobody can really be exempt or can walk away saying, I didn't really have anything that I could do today when we gathered. Right? My, my goal in creating discussion groups to get us ready for the sermon is so that everybody has an opportunity to stir each other up and to encourage each other through the word. Because it gives every single person an opportunity. I mean, I've been in churches where that's not the case, where you can show up and you can participate the entire time without having to contribute anything. And I just think that that's missing the mark when I read a passage like this, because part of the reason that we gather is so that every single individual gets a role to play in stirring other people up to good works and encouraging each other. Now, I get it. That can happen when we dismiss and I tell you, hey, stick around as long as you can, talk and encourage each other. But man, I don't want anybody to miss an opportunity to see that they get to participate in the service and it not just be show up and hear Tyson sing and hear some other people play instruments and hear Adam teach. That you, if you choose to, because we don't mandate it, if you choose to, have a role to play every Sunday that you come here. And if you, if you want to read ahead and kind of study and prepare ahead, and you may have more to contribute. But man, I try to pose the questions to where everybody off the cuff can at least say something or ask something or, or do something within that discussion if they want to. Can offer some type of encouragement. Because I can get up here and kind of tell you the things that I learned from this passage, but man, I want everybody to be able to play that role in being able to encourage each other with, with their previous experiences, things that God has shown them. That's part of why we do those groups. It's because I see a need in the reasons that we gather to provide opportunity for you to stir each other up, for you to encourage each other. Our assurance is tied to our connection with other believers. Our own confidence and assurance will shape the ability and the extent of our encouragement to others. So my ability to encourage others is going to be directly tied to how confident and assured I am in my, on my own side of things. So I need to embrace confidence and assurance and get those things figured out so that I can be a better encouragement to other people. And here's the thing, our urgency should be trending upward as we get closer and closer to the day of his return, right? Like all the more as this day is approaching. Now remember, Last chapter, we said what two things are going to happen. Death is coming, we can't escape it, and his return is coming, and we should be eagerly waiting for it. So here's the thing. Who should be prioritizing attendance in the church most? The oldest people in the church, because they are closer, they are closer to death physically than others, right? We're all closer to his return than we were last week. But if we want to talk, because here's the thing, I think sometimes... The trend is downward the older that you get in regards to church attendance. It's like getting older, um, maybe not as big of a priority. 
But man, I think, I think it's got to be more of a priority because you're closer to, you know, unless, unless you know, people obviously die at early ages. But from a physical standpoint, the expectancy of life, you are closer to death than others. Man, the expectation that the priority should be, man, I need to be with people as much as possible so that I hold fast to the very end because I can't miss this. I, I can't afford to fall away because I am close to the end, right? So trending upward, the older that we get, trending upward every week that passes because we're getting closer to both, all of us are. So the older I get, the more I should prioritize attendance in church because I'm closer to my death and all of us are closer to Jesus coming back, right? And he says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Some implications here that flow with the rest of this chapter. Number one, I need to avoid ongoing patterns of disobedience to ensure that I persevere in worship. I need to avoid ongoing patterns of disobedience to ensure that I persevere in worship. What's being described here in 26, for if, I, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but fearful expectation of judgment. It's deliberate continuance in sin that leads to falling away. Notice it's committed by the knowledgeable. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And then specifically, we're told what this looks like. It says, um, do you think, uh, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, <coughs> and has outraged the Spirit of grace? There's three things that I see being highlighted there that are happening. One, there's a rejection of the identity of Christ, the trampling of the Son of God. There's a rejection of the work of Christ, considering his blood profane or, or unneeded. And it's also a rejection of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's the exact same things that are happening in that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit passage, remember? Where Jesus has done this great work, has presented himself as the Son of God, and the Pharisees say what? You're the devil, right? And, and Jesus pauses and says, I got nothing else for you, right? Like if you don't believe that I am who I say I am, if you don't believe that my work is from the Father, and if you can't yield to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I got nothing left for you. And that's what the author is saying here, is that if you fall into a state where, where ongoing, continual, deliberate sin is the pattern in your life, you're gonna fall away. You're gonna fall away and show yourself to not really be a true believer. And at that point, there may not be the opportunity for repentance because you may have fully rejected the gospel. And that's why I said carefully earlier, we're not going to label people this because I don't think there's any criteria here that would give us confidence to say that somebody is this. But it ought to give us pause to say, man, what would this look like if somebody was guilty of this to help us avoid that type of behavior? But it's deliberate, ongoing, continual sin that leads to falling away. In the Old Testament, it's described as idolatry and it resulted in death. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse two through seven, it highlights the fact that Man, if they were guilty of idolatry, there wasn't a sacrifice really for them. They were, they were to be killed for it. They were to be killed for it because they had blatantly denied the old covenant and had gone after other gods. How much greater then is the punishment for doing this towards Jesus? It's a, it's a lesser to greater argument that he's making here. Man, if it was death in the Old Testament for doing this, what do you think it's like under the new covenant? The, the greater sacrifice, the greater priest, to reject that, how much greater is the punishment? That's why there's such this fearful expectation, this vengeance of God that's gonna come. It's fearful to fall into the hands of the living God. Man, he wants us to avoid this. Wants us to avoid this. Those who go on sinning willfully and deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth will not find forgiveness in the end. Now, does that mean that Christians that sin lose their salvation? No, because we know from like passages like Galatians 6, 1, that sinning Christians can be restored, right? First John 2, we have an advocate that we can confess our sins to. This is a state of mind where, where you have abandoned Jesus and have moved into a state of deliberate disobedience. It's become a regular pattern that you don't intend to repent from, okay? Um, we need to avoid ongoing patterns of disobedience to ensure that we don't ever get to that state, right? And then lastly, I need to recall my former days of obedience to ensure that I persevere in obedience. I need to recall my former days of obedience to ensure that I persevere in obedience. Look what he says. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, 
sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partnered with those so treated. He had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. You do not, uh, therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I mean, I think the author is saying here, falling away doesn't fit with your amazing past. I think he's primarily talking to people, and then he kind of comes back and says, I don't expect any of you to fall into this state. There's too much background that shows me otherwise, right? Like he's like, I'm, 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 I'm pretty, I'm as confident as a human can be that you're Christians. I'm warning you not to do this because I don't want to see you fall away. But man, everything inside of me says that'll never happen because I really believe that you're, you're not the type that shrinks back, right? But God uses warnings in scripture to accomplish his purposes, right? Does anybody think that Herod could have killed Jesus? No, like, like King Herod had no possibilities of killing Jesus, Right? Whether the, the wise men listened or not, Herod was never going to be able to kill Jesus before the appointed time, right? But what, is, what, is, what does God do to Joseph? He comes to him in a dream and says, you need to get out of town and go to Egypt because Herod's going to try to kill Jesus. The warning was used to accomplish the plan of Jesus, right? Like that warning was used to direct the events so that the things that were accomplished the way that God wanted them to be accomplished. I think that's absolutely what happens here too. God warns us not to fall away, not because we necessarily can fall away, but to make sure that we don't. He uses it as a tool to keep us persevering and not shrinking back. We need to press on in trials and hold loosely to earthly things as they may likely be taken away at some point. He talks about their former days and how they were accepting the plundering of their property. They knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. Our ongoing confidence is tied to our ongoing endurance. The reward is not gained in the end without that endurance. So the implications here, avoid the ongoing patterns of disobedience. Recall former days of obedience to ensure that you keep persevering in obedience. All right, two points of application real quick. Number one, there's been a lot of application today, all right? But some real practical things to do leaving. Number one, take some time to recall your faith history and identify anything that needs to be rekindled in your life. Man, just pause and think back and say, okay, what did my life used to look like as a Christian? Because he says, recall the former days. And man, it's a, it's a great list of things that they were, they were, that were true about them, right? Some things that maybe weren't as true about them in the current state, right? Because some of them are neglecting to meet together. Whereas a couple of years ago, they were willing to identify with people in prison, which could have meant their own imprisonment. Now you're, now you're scared to come to church, but you used to go do, be a part of the prison ministry, right? So let's take some time to think back on our past faith history. Is there anything that we used to do, anything that used to be true about us that needs to become true of us again? Things should be trending upward versus downward, right? Take some time to think about past you, Anything that's missing that was good that needs to be brought back. Number two, take some time to be intentional with your accountability group and consider how to stir each one up to good works. What do I mean by that? If somebody asked you, how do you stir up people in your accountability group to good works? I just want you to have an answer for it because we're told to do it. And while you may not be able to do it on the grand scale of our small church, part of the reason that we break things down bigger to smaller to smallest is so that we can manage some of these application points directly with individuals in our church, right? So you're told to stir people up to good works. How do we make sure that everybody gets to participate in that? Man, our accountability groups are a great setting for that. Think about what are you doing intentionally to stir people up in your accountability group to good works? If you don't know how to answer that, take some time to figure out how to be faithful to apply that passage, all right? Family worship questions this week to read through chapter 11. Great passage, a lot of good Old Testament stories that are reminded there. Take some time to read through chapter 11 in preparation for next Sunday. Let's pray together. God, we love you and we thank you for this really important chapter. God, I'm thankful that there is much confidence and assurance that's communicated here for people who regularly doubt. God, for whatever reason, Doubting our salvation is something that seems to, to be at least something that every Christian deals with at some point. 
God, I pray that if anybody's doubting their salvation today, that you would use the content of chapter 10 to give them confidence and assurance. Help them to attack the unbelief with the work of Jesus. We thank you that Jesus offers a better sacrifice. We're thankful that we don't have to bring any sacrifices today. We're thankful that on our way out today, we don't have to get a list from an elder or a deacon or whoever with a list of things that we have to go accomplish this week because of our mess-ups last week. God, we're thankful that the one sin offering that you offered dealt with sin forever. We're thankful that we have full access into the, the great throne room now, that we have every right to be there and we can enter at any point. And we don't have to feel shame We don't have to shrink back. We can be fully confident that we belong there because of our forerunner in Jesus. God, help us to keep gathering together faithfully and to do it intentionally. God, help us to not become robots that just show up here on a Sunday morning, expect to sing three songs, expect to get a sermon, and expect to walk out and eat lunch. God, help us to come intentionally, weekly, with a role to play, to stir each other up, to encourage each other. Whether that's here on a Sunday morning, whether it's at small group, whether it's at accountability group, whether it's at a men's dinner, women's dinner, God, help us to be intentional when we gather together to do it intentionally. Help us to take some time this week to reflect back on our previous life, things that you've done in our past that maybe need to be brought back. God, give us a desire to be doers of the word and not hearers only. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.